Hey, beautiful people, and thank you for listening to the Bang 2-3 podcast. If you find this funny, entertaining, or insightful, feel free to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, or if you want to make my day, go show us some love on our Instagram page, because I love each and every single one of you. Thank you for listening. All right, so I'm joined with my newest buddy here, um, Curvin. Uh, just found out recently that Curvin actually grew up about 50 miles from where I did. And yeah. right now we're probably located a thousand miles away. So it's a, <laughs> it's a small world, but a big world. Uh, Curvin is a 15 year army intelligence veteran. He's a CEO of Oakland analytics. Uh, he's also the co-host on a weekly geopolitical podcast called this week explained Curvin. Thanks for coming on. Hey, thank you for inviting me. It's good to be here. Absolutely. So what is, so you've been in the army for 15 plus years. That's a really long time. What is the scariest situation you've ever been in as part of the uh, army? Wow, that's uh, that is a really great question um, that I can remember right now. So um, I'll, I'll tell a story. We were we're out in in Iraq. This is two thousand four, two thousand five time or two thousand five time frame. Um, and so you know, it's the height of the Iraq War and IEDs going off all the time. So I got, I got two of them here. Um, one's a pretty interesting one as we're, as we're standing out. Um, so after a, after a shift, we're doing a 12-hour shift, we always go back to what we call the, the chew or the hooch, you know, where we stay. And it was, it's sort of if you think of a single wide trailer and you divide that up into three equal parts, you have three different rooms in there and everybody's got a roommate. And we all like to congregate and hang out after we've done a shift just to kind of blow off some steam. Uh, we're doing it once and, uh, the door, my door is open. There's a few people standing out and we're just, you know, discussing the day and, and what's been going on. Then all of a sudden you hear that whistle coming from a projectile, a missile oh, wow. or a rocket, and you can hear it. And what, it, what you're always told is if you can hear it, you're good. It's when you can't hear it that you don't hear it because it slams right into you. So you kind of hear the whistle and go. You have a split second to think. So the initial thought was, wow, that's pretty close. And then it hit about 100 meters from where we were standing. Oh, my God. And just slammed into the ground and didn't go off. So we were feeling good, feeling, feeling kind of protected. Now, the other one is, um, so in 2005 in Iraq was the elections in January. And I was tabbed to... Um, be one of the liaisons for the Iraqi police at their police station in a little subdivision of Baghdad, which is called Kark, Kark IP station. And um, so we get we get in there and you just meet these incredible people who just love their country and who just want, you know, what, what's best for their country. And so we're we're getting the tour of it and we're sleeping in the police station. And so we're picking our beds and, and I pick where I'm going to to lay out. And as I'm doing that, at, I was told, well, yeah, that's so-and-so's bed. He usually sleeps there, but he's going to sleep on the floor. So I'm already feeling kind of bad because I've just taken someone's bed because uh, whether they think I'm more important than them or if it's just a hospitality thing, it's, it's still kind of, uh, I didn't want to take this guy's bed. So, so I start getting the bed in and um, I lay in there and somebody comes in and looks at me. And they said, hey, look straight ahead of you. And I look straight ahead and there's a window right in front of me. 
And he's like, yeah, we usually get RPGs through that window right there. And I'm like, and I have to sleep here. Great. Thank you. Holy shit. So, so they got, so the people with the RPGs are, they're just aiming straight for the window. Yeah. They're, I mean, they're indiscriminate. They just want to hit anything. So. Could you take me or somebody inside? What is it like to be deployed in Iraq or in the Middle East? It is. um, So I can tell you how I felt before I first went. So this is 2004 timeframe and and we're gearing up to go and I'm scared for my life. Uh, All the media reports are that everyone's dying and um, you you go through basic training and they tell you you're going to die and and you need to train better because you're going to die. So that is at the forefront of your mind at all times. And then then you get in there and we we actually were part of a group that drove from Kuwait into Baghdad. So we we drove and if I know this is a long time ago, I don't know if anyone remembers all this time. There was a lot of discussion on up armored Humvees mm-hmm. and we went with what's called a canvas uh, Humvee, which just has canvas doors, a canvas top. And we created our own up armoring. So we had uh, this thick metal all over that we that we attached to our doors to make new doors that could possibly um, that, that could possibly withstand you know, uh, gunfire or anything. It's not going to, it's not going to withstand the blast of a IED or an RPG or anything, but at least if you're getting shot at, you know. So uh, that brings up another great scary story is uh, as we cross into Iraq and my door collapses off because it's too heavy. So I'd put too much armament on it. And so now here I am with no door, just getting into Iraq and I'm just having to sit there and hope, pray, nothing happens. Um, so there's nothing that is going to, um, what, what's the term here? There, there's nothing that's going to prepare you for what you experience there because everyone's experience is going to be different. So for my experience, I'm not a combat veteran. So I'm not on the front lines shooting other individuals. I, I am behind the scenes. I am on what's called a forward operating base. Uh, or a FOB, as we like to call it. And I, I'm doing intelligence analysis there. And and I kind of think that as an intelligence analyst, you have a better experience while deployed mm. because you understand what's going on. So you know the threats. You can you can see the threats. You can predict maybe what, uh, what your, your buddies are going to engage when they do go out. Um, but I was... N- there was not a point that I can remember where I felt like I am in danger of dying right at this moment. Mm. Now, the worst part is you're you're away from family and friends for we we spent 18 months and I got to go back to got to go back to Louisiana once during that 18 months. And so uh, I was 20 years old at the time. And so you can think of what does every 20 year old want to be doing? Well, they don't want to be going to the sandbox um, to, to participate in a war, to participate in a conflict. Definitely don't want to be doing that. And so there is a lot of like mental issues that that you go through. There's a lot of physical issues that you go through trying to keep your body in shape. Um, I I think I don't know what how people think what it looks like, what a war looks like when you get into a war zone. But I can tell you 
that going into Iraq, it was it, it was far better than I thought it was going to be. I mean, our our meals were these incredible meals that were put together. Uh, you go to a, a chow hall or a dining facility, and you have your your pick of chicken tenders and, wow. and hamburgers. So you've got a lot of these these uh, individuals who twenty years old. 18, 19, 20 years old, first time out of the house, first time out of the country for me personally, first time out of the country. And there's, you have your commander and your first sergeant telling you what to do, but you don't have your parents carrying you, holding your hand, telling you what to do and what not to do. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of interesting things you can get into there, a lot of trouble you can get into. So my experience was most days, typically what I would experience on any military base like Fort Hood or Fort Bragg, those large military bases. That that was my experience. Those kind of bases with projectiles coming in every once in a while. Um, we had all, so we have what's uh, MWR, it's morale, welfare, and recreation. And so we had the all these things, PlayStations, Xboxes. Um, they They really did an incredible job of if you are going out all the time and, and you are going through all of these um, violent conflicts, that when you come back, you have sort of this safe space mm-hmm. that you can just unwind and you can get on a phone and talk to family. Now, there, there are guys out there who have a totally different story than me. They were out, they, they never touched a forward operating base. They were in the city all day, every day. They were fighting conflicts day in and day out. You know, some people for days at a time. They they were in firefights. Um, I know that that is that took a huge mental toll on a lot of those guys. Um, so that's why I say that's not the experience that I had. But there are those kind of experiences. And if you if you do meet someone who has been to Iraq, Afghanistan, any of those places. Um, it is always good to not assume what they went through and to really ask what, you know, what was your experience there? Um, try, I usually try not to um, say what the news is saying, saying what the media is saying about yeah. certain things and just ask for a personal experience. And, and so you'll get hundreds of different stories of experiences from people and, and they're they're all true, they're all factual, and um, and they're all different. And they, that that's what's so interesting about being in a conflict, being in a war, is the people that you meet. I met some Iraqis who are just incredible people, love their country, um, and and some that loved us being there, and and wanted us to stay forever, and and kind of push out this insurgency. And then there are people that I am closely associated with who had an, the exact opposite experience with some people that they, they spit on them and, and wanted to, to kick them out and, and shot at them and, and tried to kill them. Yeah. Um, first of all, I would just thank you for your service. I, I feel like I would love to sit down with a million or however many um, Iraqi war veterans, people who've been there. I would love to hear it all. I think it's incredible. I couldn't even imagine. I wish that 
in in my opinion, if I was the leader of the world, I think y'all should have like a special like color crown on your head or something like that. I believe <laughs> that you, people like you veterans should be above should be first class citizens and everybody should be second class. I can't even imagine what it's like over there. Some of the stories you just hear on the internet, such as YouTube and stuff that you tell me. And it's incredible. One thing that's really, that I think demonstrates how different it is. I've heard um, some veterans say that the best time of their life was during war, was when they were in war. The most famous person I've heard say this is Jocko Willink, who... Who describes it? It was the best time of his life. And while he was in war, he knew it was the best time of his life and nothing would ever match it. Could you give us a peek into that psychology and why these people think like that? Yeah, it's an it's an interesting one and it's something that needs to be unpacked because it is true. Um that becomes part of your identity as soon as you you get there. Now I will say not everybody has that experience. Not everybody feels that that was the best time of their life, but not everybody was doing the stuff that Jocko was doing or doing the stuff that Tim Kennedy was doing. Um, Those are elite special operators. They are trained to just go out and inflict the most amount of damage on the enemy. That's, that's their whole life. So every moment that's spent here back home in the U S is just training for the next moment to go out. And that becomes this mundane routine that you go through. And then you go out and let's say you lead a group of sailors or soldiers or airmen in a platoon, in conflict, in battle. There is nothing that is going to live up to that here in, in, in our everyday lives, in our, in our mundane lives. And that's truly what happens. So when you see a lot of veterans who come back and they kind of look shell-shocked or they just don't they they take themselves they they take themselves away from people and they don't want to interact with people. It is because they are missing those times and it's not they're missing those times they were killing people. They're missing those times where they were in the heat of battle with their brothers in arms. We wow. we consider ourselves brothers and sisters in arms and so you stand shoulder to shoulder with the person that is going to protect your life. When you get back here, there's very few people that you interact with daily who will give their lives for you. Mm-hmm. And that become that is very difficult to wrap your mind around. Yes. When you've seen a group of 50 people from all different backgrounds, all 50 different states who don't care what you do in your civilian life. They don't care, you know, what you say to other people online or anything like that. They only know you have my back. I have your back. And that is the the community that they're in. And it is very tough to come back from that community and, and live a fulfilling life. I know that sounds terrible to say, but it's very difficult to live a fulfilling life here. Um, that's why, you know, there's a saying that says, um, so it goes, what, um, hard times create tough men, tough men create soft times, and soft times create soft men. And, and that's the exact reason for that. Because hard times, getting into conflict, going to battle with your brothers in arms, 
changes you as a person, makes you a tougher person. And then you come back and you don't want to change that. You don't want to become that soft person that you may have once been. And so it changes you forever. And I know me personally, it took me a few years to actually identify that in my mind and move past it. And and it took work with meditation. It took work with sitting down with family and discussing these things. The best thing that you can do is discuss it. And that sounds counterintuitive when you have some trauma that you're going through. It's not beneficial to really discuss that trauma unless you have a, a professional with you. But these men and women just do want to talk about it. They don't understand that sometimes. They'll just leave me alone is what someone will say. But if you can discuss, if you can put formulate what you're thinking into words to someone who can actually um, identify what you're saying and who can hear you and can bring value to the conversation, it really helps your mental health. That doesn't mean you ever get over um, wanting to go back and wanting to do that again. It it happens to everybody. So do you think it's just the camaraderie? It's the miracle of going to battle with somebody that you may have known for a couple months or a couple years and knowing that I would die for this person and they would die for me and just nothing in the regular world can match that. Yeah. I mean, 100%. It, so it's that, and then it's, you couple that with these, um, these moments of just probably like sheer terror, first of all, because if you're being attacked, if you're being shot at, that's terrifying and, and you don't want to experience that ever again, but you get, you know, you get this adrenaline rush from it, yeah. even from, yeah, you get an adrenaline rush from firing a weapon. That's anyone who's fired a weapon knows that. Now, if you multiply that by a million, that is the kind of adrenaline you get in the heat of battle and your mind and your body as a human being will always try to replicate that yeah. because it, it wants to feel it again. And that's where we get a lot of problems with people who just want to feel that again, and they will do anything, you know, we, drugs, alcohol, um, suicide, all of those things are because of your body wanting to feel again. You have a tough time feeling, and that's, that's just being completely honest. Those guys in those situations have a tough time feeling things. Because it will never match to that adrenaline rush you get from going to battle. And then, like I said, like you said, the camaraderie together. Because if you experience something and you experience it alone, it is nowhere near as impactful as if you experience it with a group of other people. And you always have that with you. My goodness. I think I I think I have chills. This is incredible. I wish... Like I said, just to say again, if if I could just sit down and talk to a, a hundred um, people who went to Iraq, I would just um, I would be thrilled. If we could step back for a moment, and I I think everybody loves to talk about learning from history. You know, don't if you don't learn from history, you're bound to repeat it. Um, the Iraq War was a very significant uh, historical moment event. It went on for a long time. There was lots of bloodshed. There was lots of good and bad things that can't came from it. What do you think 
we've learned as a country and maybe as a people from the Iraq war? Uh, I think what we are learning right now is that we're tired. <laughs> we're, we're tired of these conflicts and that goes for veterans and, and civilians alike. Um, just real, so I hope real quick, we've learned real that quick with that, that that's another question. And we'll get back to the Iraq war, but okay. that, I think that's something everybody wants to know. Why are we, <laughs> why does America always seem like we're fighting? We're either fighting or we're propping up somebody or we're about to fight or something's going on. It's, it's like, why is this a new occurrence that's going on the past, the past couple of years? Cause I remember, uh, I believe in world war two. We, we really did not want to get in that war. We really did not. Yep. And it just seems like the entire sentiment has flipped. Why are we always fighting? So that is a case of becoming a superpower. Um, so the U.S. honestly wasn't a superpower until after World War II. Uh, when veterans started coming back from that war and they were, they were given. Now, America was a very poor country at that point. It had just come out of the Great Depression. It got forced. It, it, really forced into war. The, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, which caused the, the U.S. to get into the war, amongst another, a couple of other situations that had happened. Um, and it was the right thing to do. When we look back on it now, you see what, what Hitler was trying to do. And if we did not get into that, would, would Europe have been successful of pushing him back? Maybe, maybe not. We don't know. Um, but at that, at that moment, when that happened, and World War II is one, you know, the Allies beat the Axis and U.S. soldiers and airmen and Marines and, and naval personnel sailors come back and they're given sort of like the stipends to start businesses. And there's all this, this great production that is going on in the United States based solely on the fact that we needed to rebuild our own country after what happened. And that led to this just tremendous growth. In, in the country, we became a superpower. With that, we start to get asked by other countries who are poor and failing countries, hey, can you help us out here? Can you help us out here? Mm. Also with that is you have a target on your back. Every other country looking to be a superpower wants to, the only way they can do that is to knock you off as the superpower. So when you have countries like China, um, like the Soviet Union at the time, we were very harsh against um, against communists and socialists, and we didn't want that. We, we didn't want that idea in our economy, and we pushed we pushed that out. And so we the Cold War was started. We started pushing back against Russia or pushing back against the Soviet Union, pushing back against uh, China, and it really started up these conflicts. Like Vietnam was started because the French wanted us to help them remove communism from Vietnam and, and from those island countries there. And we said, sure, we'll do it. You know, cause, cause what does that do? What is the military industrial complex for all the bad things that we talk about the military industrial complex? It really helps the economy of the United States because uh, you're starting to put money into all these various different things that can improve technologies and it, and it improves almost every aspect of life while also destroying some aspects of life. So that's really what is going on there is, is it's just, we're the, and if anybody's listening from outside the U S you'll probably cringe when I say this, but the, the United States is the greatest country. 
Um, it is the biggest superpower. It has the most money. And so we have to protect that national security. We, we need to protect that. But other than that, we also need to fight back against anybody who is going to try to attack us. That was what each, um, each of the wars on terror, that was what it was about. It was about national security, protecting the United States of America and its people. Yeah. So I guess I, whenever you got the target on your back, I guess a lot of people want to take a shot at you. Um, Definitely. So back, back to Iraq. Um, sorry to go on that tangent, but I think I, I just hear everybody saying, it's like, man, we're, we're either fighting this war or maybe supporting another war or um, it's just constantly in the news. So what do you think we've learned from Iraq? And by the way, would you do anything different if we could go back? Oh, yeah. So what I think we should have done differently that I also hope we learned from is that the 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 great the military can be a great infrastructure builder but when you go into a war that's not what you're there to do you were there to win battles you were there to destroy the enemy what we did wrong in iraq was we went in we liberated that country from some would would say for for wrong reasons but i say this was a guy who was brutal to his people and he needed to be out and so we we had to get him out. And we did that. We liberated him. I mean, three days it took to go from Kuwait into Baghdad in the first three days with very little opposition. And the people were liberated. The statue came down of Saddam Hussein and everyone was overjoyed. And we stayed because we said, we did this. We're going to fix it. Mm. Instead of saying, hey, international community. Hey, uh, Iraq, what do you want with this? What do you want to do with this country? We got that guy out. What do you want to do? We stayed. We created this counterterrorism, um, this, this global war on terrorism for that simple reason of we want to rebuild. And then we didn't message it correctly. It was, you, we knew as we were going in there that not we're, we're fighting against these terrorist organizations who have infiltrated Iraq after after Saddam Hussein was taken out. Um, but we're also building the hearts and minds and building uh, rebuilding houses and, and building up hospitals and things like that. And that was never messaged. It was just you're going to war. You, you know, these people, uh, what I what I talk about. And it's something that really hit me when I watched um, Band of Brothers the, the last couple of times I watched it in how. In order to go to war with, with someone else, with another country, in order for an 18, 19-year-old to fire a weapon at, at another human being, you have to dehumanize that human mm. being. And we did it in every, it's happened in every war. It's happening right now in Ukraine and Russia. And uh, we did that in Iraq. We, we as a nation, came out and, and kind of thought that, well, these are backwoods people who could never have a democracy and they just will never understand they're not smart enough. And that's not who these people were, but it had to be done if you were going to actually um, inflict damage on another human being. That's why when they say war is, is messy and war is disgusting, and the first person who doesn't want to go to war is the person who's been there before. And that's, that's the exact reason why. Um, and, and it's tough. And so 
we didn't message that properly that we were there for for rebuilding and what do you, um, and not for what conflict. Do you mean by message who are we messaging to? Messaging to the American people um, who were ready for the the men and women in uniform to be out of there and, and to come back home, and then messaging it to the Iraqi people who are getting messages from Iran um, and other neighboring countries that the U.S. is this this great Satan, this evil who is only there to destroy lives and and kill off women and children. And so that's getting messaged in the media in Iraq. And we are messaging through through certain radio stations and some infrastructure that we're building up that, hey, we're the good guys, you know, we're here for peace and, and this kind of stuff. But there was no messaging of we are here to provide to you whatever you believe you need in order to rebuild this country. Uh, we didn't do, you know, these great political meetings with the leaders uh, or the individuals who wanted to be leaders in that country. Um, we just let what we initially tried to do was just let them go about and build their own government with um, with a person that we thought should be implanted as a prime minister and a president. And so when you're doing that kind of stuff and people know that you're putting your people into the government, it gives them a, a really bad taste in their mouth that you're trying to control uh, what they're doing. You're trying to control the things that they see. And so that was the message that they received from us, that we're installing our own mm. government into your country. And it wasn't the, yeah, that hospital that had been in disrepair for 20 years. We're building it up. We are going to, uh, we're, we're going to build a school here. And everyone's going to be invited to go to it. That, as far as I know, as far as, as I've seen on sort of the macro level uh, of being outside of it, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't a general. I wasn't some big commander who knew the inner workings of what was going on. But I could see that this message was not coming through. Yeah. So it looked, it felt like to me, um, I, I wasn't very old. I was in school whenever this happened. It felt like to me that the war was a revenge thing. Like, hey, you're you're gonna come over here, you're gonna bomb us, okay, you're gonna pay. And like you said, it sounded like we went in there and we really F shit up. You know, we went bomb everybody, you know, really screwed over some people. But then, like you said, it felt like we went into like this nation building exercise. And that I never even got. Uh as a kid, I was like, oh, well, I'm just a kid. I don't understand. I still don't understand. Why the heck would we go from we're gonna, you wanna mess with us, we're gonna mess with you, to oh, now we're gonna build up a nation and put a leader in what was even the motivation behind that aspect of the war so there's there's a lot that goes into the thinking of it and first the first part of that is yeah we went in there and we just destroyed a whole bunch of stuff you know we government facilities were bombed the entire military was just destroyed and they had nothing to first of all to defend themselves from incoming countries and, and I do get it uh, so there was this moment where George W. Bush stood on um, on an aircraft carrier and he put out the mission mission accomplished banner. Mm. And he got a lot of jokes about that because we didn't leave for 10 years after that. If mission accomplished, you should be getting the hell out of there. Mission was accomplished. The mission we came in to do was accomplished. The problem was they had no government. They had no military. And they had nothing to 
to defend themselves. And now they have a country in Iran who wants to get their hands on everything, the resources in the country. They want to be a, a huge part of the political uh, the political infrastructure in that country. And oh, by the way, Iran does not like the United States at all. Mm. And so that there's fear there. So it was the decision was made that we should stay, fight against the these terrorist organizations coming in from Iran. Um, then, then also the local terrorist organizations that are building up after we bombed, you know, all of their land and things like that. So it was, hey, we created this mess. We need to mm. fix it. But my, I've always thought this that if we could have, if we as a military could have just gotten out of there and let the leaders close by Iraq, let the leaders in the major, um, the, the major governments, the US, uh, France, UK, places like that, if, if they could get a delegation to come together and start to listen to the people there and let them form their own government and their own defense system with exactly what we're doing right now with Ukraine, which just, just give them weapons to defend themselves against whoever may come in and try to infiltrate that country. That's what should have happened. It should have been this core group of special operators that stay to train Iraqis who want to be soldiers, who want to, who want to be in their military. You train those guys up. That takes a few years. Um, at, at some point, you've got to cut ties and say, hey, guys, we're out. You're going to defend yourself. And I, I said it when I was in Iraq and that was the first time. That was 2000, 2004, 2005. And I said it, I said, you know, when we get out of here, it doesn't matter when we leave, we're going to be back in five to 10 years. Mm. And as we left, that actually happened quicker than I thought. So we were back in Iraq three years after the last major forces left that country. Holy shit. I still, <laughs> I think a lot of Americans feel like this and I, I still don't grasp it. Essentially to, to make an analogy of, here's how I understand it. We were just hanging out, right? 2001, some bully came, they smacked us in the face, right? And we said, wow, you want to smack us? You want to we're America. We're going to go and we're going to, we're going to fuck all your shit up. We're going to beat you down like a fool, right? Because it was revenge. You smacked us. And then something happened where we said, oh man, we beat them up so bad. We need to stick it. We need to give them a ride to the hospital. Oh no, you have a hospital bill. We have to pay it. Oh no, you have a broken leg. Well, we're going to stick around for the three to four months at and this happened, this didn't happen over like six months. This happened over like 10 to 12 years. And whose decision was that? I, I'm so confused. I think everybody is. Whose decision was it to pour billions and billions of dollars to try to build these people up whenever the whole reason we were there was to screw them, was to uh, F them up, essentially? Uh, so to, to kind of bring it back, so in 2001, um, when People from Al-Qaeda got into planes, flew right into the Twin Towers, flew into the Pentagon, tried to hit the White House. Now, that was when we went into Afghanistan. And we went into Afghanistan because we had information that said Afghanistan was harboring Osama bin Laden. And we're going to go in there and we're going to find him. And then that mission 
sort of turned into this similar mission in Iraq. Um, because first of all, we couldn't find him. We couldn't find bin Laden. You know, we find out pretty quickly on that he's probably in Pakistan. And he's got this, so he's got this core group around him that is silent. They won't say anything. And if you watch, if you know the movie Zero Dark Mm -hmm. Thirty, which was uh, about the bin Laden raid, um, the way that, so the way that they found bin Laden was just by chance that they, they had a doctor come up and tell them that he thinks he knows where he's at. They kind of vet the guy. And then they kind of go through all these like covert actions in order to figure out where the compound was. And when they do just when, so when they found the compound for bin Laden, it wasn't, Hey, we're going to go in there and and we're just going to blow it up. First of all, Pakistan wasn't letting us in with drones, with aircraft, with anything. So we had to skirt around the, pa- the Pakistani government, um, identify where the compound is. We build a 3D model of that compound and run war games through that, uh, through this mock-up of the compound for months. This is, this is a months-long process. And then they get the go-ahead to go in there, to go in there and get him. Now, some of the reporting on why we went into Iraq was because Saddam Hussein had um, communication with bin Laden, and he was one of the ones that provoked or that that led bin Laden to do uh, the attacks on 9-11. That has never been identified. There's been no cooperation that shows that he did do that. Um, but the main reason was because the, the U.S. had identified intelligence that Saddam Hussein hold, held Weapons of mass destruction. When you think weapons of mass destruction, I think most people think nuclear yeah. weapons or, or things like that. But we're talking chemical weapons that Saddam Hussein used on his own people in 2002. He used chemical weapons on his own people. To me, that is a weapon of mass destruction. And it's used on your, on your own people. To, that's a red line to me. That's when we probably should have started to go in there. But we waited till 2003. But we kind of had the false motive, not false motive, but we kind of identified we needed to build up Afghanistan as well. And it's it's very similar to Iraq, but now you are in sort of this um you're in this terrain that you don't understand. You're in this mountainous terrain that these villagers have lived in their whole mm-hmm. life and they're they're allowing the Taliban to come in and and be with them because they think the Taliban is going to protect them. And so when you go in, when, when you do that kind of stuff and you identify, oh, I don't, I don't know these areas, it becomes very difficult for you to win a war. It's even more difficult to win hearts and minds when some of the people that you are interacting with are trying to kill you and you're trying to yeah. kill them. What what would you say to people who uh, some people argue that hey we're not the world's police if a country is committing genocide or something like that that's their problem we shouldn't be involved. Yeah, I I understand that completely, and we have tons of issues in our own country that we need to identify and fix. Uh, the the economy right now is is not great. 
we're probably, if we're not in a recession, we're about six months from a recession. These are all things that need to be fixed in our own country before we go off and, and try to fix other places. But we also, as a country, act like the big brother of all the other countries. And when we see these images of people, uh, see these images of young schoolgirls in in West Africa who were getting, you know, they're, they're getting brought in by uh, Boko Haram and they're getting married off to Boko Haram fighters. That's very devastating to, to see those kind of things. And so you can do one of two things. You can ignore it and, and maybe be culpable in that because you've ignored it, or you can take the fight to them. And, and it, it's all predicated on this. What, what I said was the global war on terrorism. It's all predicated on that. So now we are in a global war because if, if a group like Boko Haram, which is no longer as big as they used to be, if they were able to get huge to, to become this huge entity within Africa, they could start taking, you know, the, the resources within Africa and build up that organization even more, and then take the fight to the U.S. So really, what it's it's being framed as is we're going to take the fight to them first, so that they don't have a chance to take the fight mm -hmm. to us. Um, so it's sort of this defense mechanism that's put in place. And, and that's what you're seeing in all these conflicts. Um, so you might think, well, why aren't we in Ukraine then? With Russia invading Ukraine, question. we we should send troops in there. Why don't we? And it's two reasons. One, we don't want to be in another war. We definitely don't. We haven't seen war to the level that it could get to since World War II. And in order to fight against that, we can't take the fight to Russia. Um, we can provide weapons to Ukraine, provide money, do that kind of stuff. But it, it's very tough to get into another conflict if you can choose not to. Um, now, whether that's right or wrong, I don't know. Uh, I, only time will tell when we look back in history and we can see, well, that was a mistake. And, and we'll see. So you're in uh, military intelligence. You think UFOs are real? <laughs> so, uh, I like a state. I forgot who, who made this statement. Um, it might have been Andrew Bustamante who said this uh, when he was asked about UFOs. Oh, man. UFOs tell, tell me you can't tell me because it's so top secret. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I wish that was uh, I wish it was as as great as that would be to just stop stop this all right now and just we got to end the podcast and just run off but <laughs> yeah. but if you think about it on the grand on the grand scheme in the grand scheme of things and and you look at the new images that we're getting from the telescopes that are being created right now in the vastness of space and if you can sit there and look at the vastness of space and say we are the only um intelligent life form in the entire universe in in all galaxies put together um the probability of that is very little that we are the only intelligent life. Now, I would also put the probability very little that there is an intelligent life form out there that can move multiple speeds of light and and make it here to Earth from where they are, you know, thousands to millions of light years away in a time to come here, do all kinds of stuff, and then go back 
to where they came from. It's very difficult logically to think that that would be the case. And I've also seen, um, I, I was out in Vegas over the summer and I was, uh, I actually worked really close to area 51. I, d- I never got to go on because, um, it takes so many different caveats to the clearance to even get in there. You need, need to know those kind of things. But, um, there is this little, there's this, uh, like petroglyph kind of location. It's a national historical landmark and it's from, I believe 9,000 BC cave paintings from 9,000 BC. I have pictures of these things and you'll see a picture of a person, the small little stick figure of a person. And then you'll see a stick figure to scale. It would be probably two feet taller than the, the person, the stick figure you see. And they have this large oval head. And, and you can tell it's different from a human being, but it is still a biped life form. It, it walks on two feet. And, and so this is 9,000 years ago. And, and it just gets, for me, in my brain, it just has me going, what is that? Um, it, it's very similar to how people would describe an, a, an alien that they had seen. And it's there in these paintings that, that were untouched for thousands of years. So um, do I know? No, I Damn. don't at all. Um, but it is it is highly unlikely that we are it, um, w- with the innumerable amount of of galaxies that are. Yeah, out there. I tell you that is compelling evidence. Or, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, we don't know what they were drawing, but for sure they may have been tripping out on acid or weed or something. Uh, doing do, doing shrooms, doing some shrooms. One piece of evidence, I, I never hear anybody talk about this. I read it on an online forum, which was whenever canals were like cutting edge technology, like in the 20s or something like that, people were speculating that aliens were building canals on Mars. We were looking at Mars through telescopes. It was like, oh, look, that's a canal. Oh, wait, maybe that's a canal because that's all we knew. We was like, oh, man, this is the most cutting edge stuff. Now our most cutting edge stuff is like planes and rockets and stuff. And so now we think the aliens are, instead of building canals, they're flying rockets and planes. And so I'm very skeptical about the UFO, the thing flying in the sky is an alien. Um, Maybe it is, maybe it's complete BS, but I just feel like if we're going to speculate that aliens are, maybe we should look at it through a different lens than our human technology. Um, Just made me skeptical. Yeah. And it it goes, if if you want to think about like ancient times and you can go on different continents and there is a similar structure on almost all continents, Mm. the pyramids, every ancient civilization created a a pyramid. Why, you know, why was that the structure? Was that because it's the only thing we knew as human beings, the, the proper way to build a monument of that sort or was it aliens that went to each, you know, all these different areas in, in the different land masses and showed this is the proper way to build something like that? I don't have any evidence for or against it, but it's fun to just think about, man, what what if that was the well, case? I, damn, I never thought about that. So, yeah, you're right. There's pyramids in like Mexico and Egypt and all the continents. And I don't think people had people would travel. So maybe... I'm guessing like the Egyptian guy who created the pyramids didn't go to Mexico and make those. So how would they come up with the same blueprints essentially? And, and we will 
probably never know because the library in Alexandria, which is uh, which is in Egypt, it held all of the world's um, greatest achievements at the time. It was destroyed. It, it was burned down, and, and only a few pieces of material from that withstood the test of time. And so there is so much through history that is just lost that we don't know that could change our relationship with ourselves as a human race. Um, there is there is what's called a LIDAR, which is uh, it's basically just a radar system that you can see underneath the soil, underneath Earth, the Earth soil. Yeah, use it a lot to see through trees in the Amazon to see what what's going on. But they they put it out in um, in the desert in Africa, and they noticed that underneath the ground were these massive tunnels, full city tunnels that are under the ground that we never knew about because they had been under the ground since our modern um, our modern times. Which I would put. No one else is going to put this at modern times, but when I, what I'm discussing is modern times is um, anything that we still have in written form. So, you know, historical items that we have from Greece and from Rome and those kind of places, put all that into modern times. And there is stuff that we just don't know. And, and there are places that we may never find that were once these bustling metropolis of of just global powers. We have no idea. We we'll, we will never know. And it is fascinating. It's just fascinating to think about and and just how those structures were yeah, built. Yeah, it's fascinating to think that a society we always think that society progresses and it it never stops. You know, we we're just always it's always going to be bigger and better and faster, bigger, better, faster. But uh, I was actually on a podcast with a different gentleman and he made a brilliant point which was the first city in the history of the world that we know of that had a million people was Rome. And this was essentially when Jesus was alive. Mm-hmm. Um, the second city to have over a million people was like in, in the year 1800. So you have like essentially 1800 years where we weren't progressing. It wasn't happening. So if this is one kind of, I guess you call it like a reset that we know of, what other stuff happened, man, thousands and thousands of years ago? Well, I mean, I mean, think of it this way, because we're talking about the a million people in one location. But uh, what Rome did was expand, and so it, it sent all of these people to all of these different locations and, and started to um, build populations in areas that were very minimally populated, and so we went from we need everything. See, a lot of civilizations are, most civilizations are built off of water. You Mm -hmm. have to have a waterway. Um, Water is the lifeblood of human beings. We have to have water. So you'll see Egypt has the Nile. Rome has all kinds of water um, to deal with. Greece, water. Um, And so what what they did was Rome built up a government. They, They started to export that government through different wars and battles and conquer different lands. And that began to expand the human race. And oh, by the way, um, about twelve or thirteen hundred years after that, we realize there is, you know, as far as European mindset, as far as that mindset in that area, oh, hey, there's more land west of us that some thought we need to conquer, 
some thought we need to explore, but we sent people to these, these other continents, to North America, South America. Now it wasn't called that at the time, but uh, sent it out there. And they, what did they find? More people that they had never met before in their lives. Um, they did great things with those people. They did some very devastating things to, to those people. But that um, sort of that exporting of humans that happened during that time frame has really led us to where we are today. And, and now you have what? So many cities with so many different people. And, and it's because of that exploration that led to more knowledge, which has led to more technology, which has kept people alive longer. Um, and now we have what, seven something billion people. Yeah. It's crazy, dude. It's, it's crazy how that, how that stuff works. Um, I don't mean to take a hard pivot here, but cause I feel like we could talk about this all day. Listen, I could talk about the UFOs and did they make the grand Canyon and, um, is platinum real, all of this stuff all freaking day, but we may not, we may be in a nuclear war in a freaking week, um, based on all the stuff that's kind of going on over there. Uh, so I just kind of want to start with a ground floor, and we're talking about the Russia-Ukraine war, um, with a ground floor. Something that I've noticed in the coverage of the Russia-Ukraine war is everything is pro-Ukraine. It, depending, or any news source I watch, uh, find even stuff on social media, if you just read that, you would think that they are like, giving Putin titty twisters right now and like torturing him to death because they are just destroying Russia. Everybody says, oh my gosh, they are destroying Russia. doesn't stand a freaking chance. So my first question is, how do we know that any of this news is accurate whenever places like Russia and China are such like closed clamshells? They don't let any accurate information out. Uh, we know a lot of this because, and, and I know a lot of this because there are people on the ground who aren't Ukrainian, and I'm not even talking about journalists that, that are out there that are covering the war, and that's another very terrifying um, profession mm. to get into when, when you have to do, you're a war correspondent, and you're putting yourself into the middle of conflict, and you could die at any moment. But there are people on the ground, there are nonprofits that are in Ukraine that are helping individuals with uh, evacuation or medical supplies or anything like that, that are reporting things back. Um, we, uh, we can see it. So we're in a day and age where the moment a missile yeah. strikes anywhere, somebody might have it on film. And you can you could take those things, and that's not to say that every video that you see you should take it as gospel, um, because there are you know there are staged events, there are deep fakes. But what, what really was brought to light in this conflict was when, when Russia invaded, and they tried to invade under under auspices of um, freedom from the Nazis, the Ukrainian Nazis, or they did it because they said that they were attacked. And it was this sort of open source intelligence that came out and sort of identified these, this misinformation and disinformation. And they're both sides of it. And both of the sides perform misinformation and disinformation. 
the thing to do is to identify what's false, identify what's trying to miss, um, to misinform the public, and then broadcast that. We're getting a lot of that. And so that is, that's how we know on a baseline what's going on. And then on a larger scale, in the grand scheme of leaders of countries, Putin is one of the worst. He is, he does not care about anything or anyone but himself and his own legacy. And so that's where the threat of a nuclear war comes in. Now, I do want to say when we, when I talk about you using, when I talk about Vladimir Putin using nuclear weapons in Ukraine, we're not talking about nuclear annihilation of the human race. We're talking about low yield tactical nuclear weapons. Tactical nuclear weapons are done just for that, to destroy tactical sites, tactical military sites with very little um, spillover into the civilian population. The problem is, and if you see the recent barrage of missiles that, that Russia is using in retaliation for what Ukraine has been doing, they don't mm -hmm. always hit the mark and they'll hit civilian populations. And so that's the real concern of what's going on. If those, if those missiles are used, there isn't a 100% certainty that they're going to hit their target. And that could be devastating to a civilian population. That does not get the rest of the world into a nuclear war. It puts the world on notice that they were used and that more force will be need needed to use to deter Russia from doing that again. So what, what type of situation has kind of forced or caused Putin to bring up the possibility of using a nuke? Because Russia is like, 20 times the size of Ukraine. They're the big boys. What, do you think that he realizes that he's losing and this is his ace in the hole? Or is it, is it a fear-mongering thing? Or why would he even talk about this? It's, so that is a last resort. So yes, it's because he is, uh, he's losing. Honestly, he's, he's losing. And he knows it. He's identified it. And that is him losing force on force militarily. What Russia has that, the, that Ukraine doesn't have is this missile arsenal in conventional and nuclear weapons that is, would devastate the entire country of Ukraine. And he's been holding off using that until it was a last resort. And now we're seeing it. And, and now he's using it. And any analyst knew that it was going to come to this point. Unless Russia completely ransacked Ukraine and they were given Kiev and they could install their own government, it, this is what was going to happen. And it was going to be devastating to the Ukrainian military and the Ukrainian Then as people. Americans, shouldn't we want Russia to win? Not at that all. that means no nukes, right? No. That if, if Russia... So what Vladimir Putin wants is a return to the Soviet Union. If Russia wins in Ukraine, they move on. Um, I'll say when Russia wins in Ukraine, because this this mil this missile bombardment um, it is going to do a lot of damage to Ukraine. He's going to move on. Mm. There's going to be another country, and it and it is all in order to return the Soviet Union back to where they were. And then, what is he going to do from there? 
well, I started talking about it when we were talking about war in Iraq and why U.S. gets into all these wars. It's because we're the superpower. And the only way for another country to become the superpower is to take down the one that's, that's, holding, uh, that's holding that right now. And so the attacks will come for us. Um, and that could be in the cyber realm. That could be economically. But it is going to happen. And so the U.S. right now, we're trying to, to walk that fine line of being involved financially, but not militarily. There's going to become there's going to come a point where in the very near future, year, two years, we're going to have to decide that we're going to take a stand and we're going to send troops out there. And we're training for that. There's exercises for that. And it, it, it is going to happen. So, no. There was no desire that Russia should win this war in Ukraine. There's no desire that Russia should take any part of Ukraine because it's it's sort of the way I see it. It's like if you dealt with a bully in school, um, one day takes your lunch money, that's fine. Okay, whatever. Next day it's a it's a book. Next day it's your shoes. Where does it stop? Well, it stops when you stand up for what's right and you you strike back and you fight back. Until they're completely, um, not not necessarily afraid, but they, the return on investment of them doing that to you is no longer, um, yeah. is no longer beneficial to the bully, and that's what needs to happen. We need to to be there in a way that it is no longer beneficial for Vladimir Putin to continue this desire for this the return to the Soviet well, Union. I've, I've- Never heard it put that way. So what you're saying is that, hey, if Russia, let's say, wins against Ukraine, then they'll maybe go after uh, one of our allies and then maybe another. And then eventually it's going to be us. So we're at this pivotal point now where um, if Russia wins, it it's eventually going to turn into America versus Russia or America and our allies versus Russia and its allies. Which is yep, and and those allies are already. This in place. is this is a, a seems so, like a very freaking dire situation. Like, I mean, what in the world, dude? Yeah, yeah. I'm not. I'm not going to sugarcoat anything. It's um, why now? Why? 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 Why I, now? I uh, has something changed? So, um, nothing has changed. So these things are cyclical. They happen all the time we go through years of peace um and, and then we have a great conflict and, and we are in that time frame where it's another um basic time frame for a great conflict and i don't understand why this happens or how it happens it's just maybe part of human nature but um what we're seeing right now is it, russia was was they they felt comfortable enough invading ukraine knowing that they were going to have sanctions put on them. And that is leading China to be comfortable with provocations towards Taiwan. Um, that has led North Korea to be comfortable with provocations in, uh, in, the, in Korea, on the Korean peninsula. And it is giving Iran comfortability with attacks towards Israel. And so uh, I talked about how the allies are already forming. Those are, those are four allies that are already formed. And they're all working off, 
off of each other. They know that the other country has their back if something were to happen. That's why North Korea right now is shooting six missiles a week um, at, at a pace that they've never done before in their entire history. And it's because they know that the retaliation towards North Korea is going to trigger an effect with China. That's gonna, that is going to trigger an effect with Russia. And then we're in World War III. And I know I keep saying it's inevitable that we're going to get to that, but as much time as we can have in between that, where we can prepare ourselves for it, is I beneficial love that you say us. that um, because you uh, you don't hear people saying that people putting it that bluntly. So if you were my neighbor and we're neighbors, and let's just say hypothetically we don't like each other, you say get your dogs off my lawn. I say stop running your sprinkler in the day. I don't know you. I actually like you as a person, but let's say we didn't. I, I would think we could come to a compromise. I would think that most humans can come to a compromise in this type of situation. Why does it seem like countries and world leaders cannot do the same ever? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing because as, uh, when I was younger, I always thought, well, if you just put two people yeah. into a room together, any two human beings, they can yes. come to an agreement on something. Um, but what, what you see when you get to the level that is a Vladimir Putin, a Joe Biden, a uh, Xi Jinping, um, any, any world leader, it's a different mindset. In order to get to that point in your life, in order to get that kind of power, you have to have a different mindset. So whereas two normal people like you and I can come together and possibly agree on a few things, You're, these are people who were thinking not on the scale of just the two of us. They are thinking on a global scale of not only how does this affect me personally, but how is it going to affect the people that I'm supposed to lead? And even though I've mentioned some leaders that are very totalitarian and it seems like they don't care about their people, and I said Putin doesn't care about his own people, he mm. does care what happens to the country. He does care about that. Um, and, and so when you sit him in a room with a Macron from France and he tells them, I'm not going to invade, I'm not going to invade, it's all strategic. You're, you're not allowed in that position to be fully honest with people. Um, and, and so you have to lie. And he lied. And so getting in a room with Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin, they're both yeah. going to lie to each other. And then that trust is broken. And when that trust is broken, you can't agree on anything. So what to us seems like a very small, minute detail in a peace agreement that totally demolishes the peace agreement to, to the person on the other side in that leadership position, it's a huge piece to them. And so... It becomes very difficult, and that's why we have military leaders who come together and try to discuss these things um, outside of a country's economy and outside of the purview of what the media might think about it. And they'll try to calm some of these, you know, calm the nuclear war fears from uh, with other military leaders. Um, and, and it what is would you say to Vladimir Putin if you were in the room with him right now? You have one hour. One hour with Vladimir Putin, will I go in knowing yeah. he's going to lie to me? 
Um, so I don't know. First, I don't know if I would take that meeting, but you're forced. Um, you're you're representing also, America. This is your duty. Okay. Um, my first question to him would be to identify what, you know, what is his end game? And if you understand that he is going to lie with sprinkles of truth, you can start to identify where he's going with something. And, and if I can, now he's, he's far better manipulator than I could be in, in understanding what he's trying to say. Um, but every question that I would give to him would not be to get an honest answer out of him. It would try to be to piece together what's, mm. what's really going on in that situation and then use that information at the end of it to kind of give him, Hey, I know exactly what you're, what you're trying to do here. And here is what I've identified. Now, do you want to explain what's going on? And at that point, I'll either be shot or I'll be, you know, thrown out somewhere. <laughs> you would, you would die for a just cause. You would die for your country. Um, so the kind of the path yes. that I think you've laid out here is that either Ukraine wins, which kind of, I think we all agree Ukraine will never win because Russia has the Trump card, the terrible missiles, um, nukes, all of that, or Russia wins and then eventually comes knocking on our door, right? Both kind of situations kind of seem to come to the same outcome, which is a World War III knockdown drag out fight, no holds bar. Putin has to know this, right? So what do you think he's thinking? I mean, this seems like a dumb move either way. Yeah, he's made quite a few miscalculations in in this entire process. Um, and I think initially the thought was he is going to definitely go into Ukraine and in a few months take over. So he's got that um, that backing. He has no desire to stop a global conflict. His desire is to build up enough assets in in reacquiring the Soviet Union so that he has a defense force that could do more damage to Western Europe, you know, NATO and the United States and that kind of thing. So it's, it's all about um, biding time, getting what I called assets, which is just land, you know, you invade, you invade Ukraine, you install your own government. Now you can conscript military aged men into the military. And if you have enough of that, within Europe, you now have a better, have a bigger and better defense force, bigger, better military than what's going to be pushed at you. Because you talked about the Trump card, the, the two, the, you know, they have a nuclear arsenal. So does NATO. So does the U S. So unless you want to annihilate the entire human population, you're not going to use those. It's just, it's basically having, uh, the best defense that you can have as a nation. Now, a global conflict kicks off. You're going to need more. Uh, you're going to need more bodies to throw out in that conflict than the other countries. Okay, so let's just play it forward real quick. Let's hypothetically, 
um, Russia drives a truck. It's a, a civilian truck. It has a nuke in it, a tactical nuke. They set it off somewhere at um, a strategic location in Ukraine. Um, the word that they say is that Ukraine actually set the nuke off themselves that they got from America. So they blame it on Ukraine. They say, hey, they're doing this because they're trying to start a nuclear war. We're Russia. We're the good guys. We would never do that. Oh, my gosh. What do you think happens next? All right. So, um, so what you're talking about is a false flag operation. And there is one in place right now, and it is within the Zaporizhia um, nuclear power facility. Because if if a nuclear missile were launched into Ukraine, even from Ukraine, we all know it was not done by Ukraine because they don't have nuclear a nuclear arsenal. Mm-hmm. But they have a nuclear power plant, largest nuclear power plant in Europe. And if that were to be destroyed, the fallout could reach. You could reach Germany, which is a NATO country. It would be devastating to to so many people. And that false flag operation has been on the docket for months now. It's why Russia wanted Saparicha. That's why they they held the referendum there so they can have control of that power plant. Because now they have control of a nuclear power that they can use if they need to to completely devastate a human population. So what happens if that happens? Um, it's it's very easy to identify who, uh, what country was involved in it. If we have good open source intelligence information on it, um, but there will be, you know, some, especially within Russia, media reporting will be that it was Ukraine. There will be some media reporting that's pro Russia uh, around the world that will say it was Ukraine. Um, but you kind of identify when Russia won't allow UN inspectors to come in and verify what happened. It, it starts getting the wheels turning in your head and you understand, well, this was a Russian false flag operation. And at that point, if it reaches Germany, that's going to look like an attack on a NATO country, an attack on a NATO country that, um, that, that strikes Article 5 of, uh, of the NATO powers, which says that uh, if a NATO country is attacked, it, all NATO countries are attacked and must retaliate. That gets us into a war with Russia, which in, would in turn to have China either decide, well, we're going to invade Taiwan since everybody's so worried about Russia, or come to Russia's aid in that particular moment. Wow, that's it's not a that's not a good outcome there, and. I think that's a good point that we would want UN inspectors to go and inspect the rubbish and kind of verify where the attack came from. I I guess my last question and and probably the most important is what type of advice would you give to the average American on how can we best prepare for this or what should we do? Well, first thing I always like to say is, especially in the environment that we're in right now, is to be kind to individuals. Be be kind to your neighbor. Be kind to to people. Don't um, don't think that everyone's out to get you. Now to prepare for um, to, to prepare for this kind of situation that could be a very bleak situation. I, I always say to have a plan in place. Ha- mm-hmm. Always have a plan. And when you have that plan, identify that that is it's a smart plan. It's a good plan. It, it's a good exit strategy. 
and then we'll do what we do in the military, which is train to that plan. And so, you know, whatever, whatever you're identifying, I want to keep my, my, my family safe from a nuclear attack. Well, when you get the alert, you've got about 10 minutes to, to react to that. So when you're formulating these plans, formulate that 10 minute time frame of where, you know, what's a safe place that you can get to. Um, and, and what is, uh, what is the best exit from whatever location that you are on a typical day? What is a safe place? Uh- so not being in New York, Washington, DC, <laughs> LA, that's, that's a starter. Um, the initial blast isn't what's going to kill a lot of people. It's going to be the, um, the fallout from the radiation. Yeah. So, you know, right now what's going on in Poland is iodine tablets are being given to, to citizens. Get, get iodine tablets, get things that are going to prevent you um, not from being harmed by radiation because you're going to get harmed, but to just keep you going longer until you can find, um, you can find a solution to that, get into a hospital, um, protect yourself and, and understand that your, you know, your friends and, and your family and the, the people closest to you are what's most important and understand that they need to be safe and you need to be safe. And then you can go on any number of websites and look up what's going to protect you in a nuclear fallout. Like I said, iodine tablets, it's, that's a key one. Um, staying, it, well, you're in Louisiana and, and when I was in Louisiana, I didn't understand this, but being in a basement, you know, underground, yeah. things like that is really going to keep you and then just waiting for not what government officials tell you, but waiting for what security officials are telling you in the aftermath of that. And just and doing that kind of stuff where if they tell you, you need to move from this location to a different location, do that. Do that in a form, in, in, a, you know, in a timely manner. And that's why at the beginning, I said to be kind. When you asked me this question, I said, be kind. Because it's that kindness that's going to help you survive. Your your kindness to your fellow man is going to help you survive. Wow. Well, you are incredibly insightful. I think you are the best person I've heard on this topic. So uh, I thank you I so really much. I really appreciate for, that. No, I, I'm, I'm serious. I, I think people are swamped, swamped with information on this stuff. And to have somebody who has such a sharp um, no nonsense approach to cut through the mess. I think that you're valuable and I think you should continue talking and spread the word. Where can people find you? All right. So, um, so the company's Oakland analytics, we're on Instagram at Oakland analytics, um, putting out breaking news, uh, top news stories, things like that. The podcast is this week explained on all the podcatchers. So Spotify, Apple, anywhere you you get your podcast, you'll find it there. We also do a monthly insightful inquiries where we do basically what's going on here, just interviewing um, people with all kinds of experience that, that give these insightful sort of answers to things. And then the website is oakwindanalytics.com. And that's that's where you can find me. Cool. I'll put all of those in the show notes. Thank you. Much appreciated. Yeah, Kervin, you are awesome. You're one of the smartest people I've ever talked to. I feel like I could talk to you for four hours about everything, including my emotional problems. Uh, (laughs) Thank you so much for coming on. I hope you have an awesome day, man.
Yeah, keep Lafayette safe. Yes, sir. 